You can go to Acts chapter 6. It's Acts 6 this morning. I think we're in week 13, if we want to count it like that, in our series. Took a break for Advent, but now we're getting back into it for, I think, through summer. This is how long the series is going to go. So if you're just joining us, uh, we started the series in September, going through the book of Acts. Um, the series, we don't, have a, we don't have a title behind me for it, but it's called The Church That Jesus Builds. And what we get as we dive into the book of Acts is we get this picture um, by Luke, the writer of the book, um, on what it looked like when God established the early church. And some of the remnants of that early church, of course, is us today, what we're doing this morning. And so we see the disciples, after Jesus ascended to heaven, waiting like Jesus asked them to do. And he said, wait, because you're going to embark on a church planting work, but you need power. You need to be empowered to do this. And so the disciples waited and eventually they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they were given a unique kind of power for that particular time, which was, um, man, to do things like heal people and cast out demons. And so these were brothers that when they went through the towns proclaiming the gospel, they would be healing the sick. They would be doing miraculous signs and wonders. And those miraculous signs and wonders, what they would do is they would give testimony to the fact that in Jesus Christ there is power. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God. And so they were saying, this Jesus person that you keep hearing about, he's true. These stories are authentic. And so that's how they authenticated the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And as they were doing this, the church begins to grow. And so as they preach the gospel, many people start coming to faith in Christ. Not only that, but they develop a church community out of it. So it's not just a bunch of people coming to faith in Christ and then finding a building, buying some land, building a building, showing up on Sundays and just doing the thing right? But they actually formed a community around the truth of the gospel, which meant they had everything in common. The gospel is what gave them everything in common. They were a diverse group of people, but through the gospel, they had all things in common in terms of the way that they loved one another, the way that they reached into the community, the way that they used the gifts that God had given them to spread the message of the gospel. And of course, that didn't come without opposition, because you remember, even when we were going through the book in October and November, we saw Peter and John just face severe opposition for preaching the gospel. And most of that opposition came from uh, the religious people of the day, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees who said, hey, this Jesus guy that we crucified, you need to just shut it down. You need to stop talking about him. You need to start bringing people out of our religious traditions and into this new tradition, this Christianity, this new way that you guys keep uh, proclaiming and promoting. And of course, every time that happened, um, Peter and John and the disciples would just pray for more boldness and they would receive more boldness. And so what we see is that the gospel continues to spread. Opposition continues to grow, but the church continues to come together and thrive as a community. So last time, um, 
when we were in this book at the end of uh, November, we read the beginning part of Acts chapter 6 um, because the church had grown to a place where they needed some help and they needed to establish some structure. So I'm going to pick up just to give us a little bit of a recap in chapter 6 verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what's happening right now is right here, we're introduced to a man named Stephen, who this week and next week, we're going to focus on in kind of a two-part series within our series. But we're introduced to a man named Stephen who was appointed as a deacon. And what we know by deacon, even though the word deacon here isn't used, what it means is that it's a service-oriented ministry in the church, just like it is here at Substance. We have deacons because the early church in Acts, like I just said, it had grown to a place that the apostles, they needed to make sure that their time was spent in prayer, it says, and the ministry of the word. Now, notice that the needs of the church, man, they're, they're not overlooked they're not discounted here. It's not this thing where you have pastors standing behind their pulpits declaring that the only thing that matters is prayer and preaching, right? Now, those are matters of first importance, right? Those need to undergird the ministry of the church. But to deny that the church has physical needs would actually just be a denial of the word that is being preached, right? In fact, James, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In other words, it's been nice knowing you, hope it all works out so long. He says, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He said, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what the disciples here are practicing is an alive faith. They're working out their faith. They're caring for the needs of the people. Now, the only notable thing that Luke mentions here about Stephen in particular is that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And so what's intriguing about this is that from this just this kind of brief introduction at the beginning of chapter 6, you really never expect to read what it is that we're about to read. This just incredibly tragic story we're about to unpack over the next two weeks. Because upon first glance, Stephen is just a faithful deacon. And there's that word, just. That word, just, that, that can tend for us as Christians to sort of plague us a little bit. And, and here's what I mean by that is that sometimes we let our roles, we let our, our job titles, we let our positions or our gifts be how we evaluate the potential fruitfulness 
of our faith. We use the word just. We say things like, I'm just a school teacher. I'm just a carpenter. I'm just an IT person. I'm just a mom. I'm just a supervisor. I'm just a student. I'm just a manager. I'm just a blue collar worker. I'm just a business owner. I'm just a kid. We think what we do in life is what determines our level of gospel fruitfulness. And all of that would be true if it were found anywhere in the Bible, right? Psalm chapter one, verses one through three, this is what it says about those who have the living God living inside of them. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So it says the fruitful person, the one who is blessed and finds favor with God is one who engages with God his word. We learned that last week, remember? The heaviest insert that anybody's ever had in a bulletin was this Bible reading plan, right? And we gave it to you guys as an encouragement to get into God's word. But this is what the psalm is saying. And this is what, this is what the psalmist then says the effects are of somebody who is blessed by God by pouring in to the things of God. And by the way, it's not talking about title or vocation at all. He says this, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. So what this reminds us of is that it's not what we do, it's who we are. And then God gives us things to do to demonstrate who we are becoming. And then we're reminded in Proverbs 11.30, it tells us that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, it says. And whoever captures souls is wise. So there's this idea about the fruit that comes out of our life. It's not the result of a title. It's not the result of just being this. It's not, it, it's not at a lack because we are just this person. We just have this job. We just have these talents, but not these talents. Or we lack this, or we have a little more of that. But it actually comes from the faith that has been given to us by God. So gospel fruitfulness, it comes from those who have been made righteous in Christ, find their delight in God, not because they find themselves in the right vocation or they've you know, landed a gig in full-time ministry. Godliness is a gospel story, and it's a gospel story that God began writing in your life, all right? Before he even created the foundations of the earth is what the book of Ephesians tells us. And so your vocation and your job, your position and your gifts, they're given as a means to further gospel fruit, which means everything around you is a mission field. You don't got to take that trip to China to be on the mission field, right? We talk about this a lot at Substance. A barista has a mission field that orders caramel mocha lattes all day, right? That's a mission field. A car salesman has a mission field in the car lot looking at vehicles all day. A stay-at-home mom has a mission field in the playground at Freer Field all day. A baseball coach has a mission field that shows up at their kids' games every week. A student has a mission field sitting beside her every day in class. Does that make sense? 
So if we go back to verse 7, we understand Stephen, this deacon, this brother, as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, whose job it was, he had a job, he had a title, was to make sure that the needs of the widows in the church were taken care of. But Stephen also had a mission field. And this is where we pick up in verse 8. Look what it says. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the spirit and the wisdom with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So let's stop right there just for right now. So what we see with Stephen is that having the gifts of a deacon, first off, doesn't mean that you don't have gifts of preaching. You don't have gifts of evangelism. You don't have gifts of apologetics, which means being able to make a defense for the gospel. A good example of this, I'm going to embarrass him sitting right here looking at me in the face, is our brother Scott Long. Um, Scott Long also, also preaches, right? I think he's after only preaching three or four sermons, I think. Um, clearly a brother with preaching gifts. And you guys would all affirm that because you've, you've heard him preach. And it's been a blessing when, when he has. So Stephen, he's able to faithfully proclaim and practice the gospel message in the mission field that God has given him. But what we see here is that adversaries rise up and that just seems to happen all through Acts. Every time brothers and sisters get bold with the gospel, they open up their mouth to say, no, 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 Jesus Christ, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, man, opposition comes. And so it was this group called the freedmen who were this really collective of Jews that had been freed from slavery is what we know about them. And um, they banded together to take offense to Stephen's message, which by the way, is absolutely no surprise, right? Because so far, like I just said a minute ago in the book of Acts, whenever we see the gospel preached, we see the religious establishment rise up. Why do they rise up? Well, they rise up because their traditions are being challenged. And boy, oh boy, are they being challenged, right? Um, and again, this should tell us something. This alone should tell us something, shouldn't it? I mean, I mean, shouldn't this caution us in some ways in the sense of this, is that if our version as the church, follow me, if our version of the gospel is so widely accepted without question and opposition within the wider culture, is it a true gospel? Are we just capitulating? Is our gospel just something that just adopts the practices of our culture and our community? Is our gospel more eager to fit in with a particular traditional paradigm so that we stay cool with everybody? Or is it something that causes opposition to rise up because traditions are being just unseated and demolished? 
That's something we need to ask ourselves. In fact, Paul spoke to this in 2 Corinthians 2.17. He said this, he says, for we are not, he says, not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul lays out the very thing that, is, that he's saying is gonna get him busted over and over again. And it's what we see with these particular disciples. So Stephen was preaching an unfiltered and undiluted sincerity drenched, commissioned by God, gospel of Jesus Christ that the religious establishment was unhappy about. They were bummed out about. In fact, Stephen, it says, was saying things about Jesus that confronted their tradition. In other words, what they were saying to Stephen was, they're saying, dude, you cannot say that. This goes against what we were brought up to believe. You're saying things about Moses and God against the temple, the holy place, and the law. That doesn't vibe with us. But what we'll see in Stephen's defense next week is that what he actually said about the holy place and the law was what Jesus himself said about those things. So what we know about gospel proclamation is that it needs to follow a pattern of what Jesus said. Not what tradition says. As long as tradition says what Jesus says, well, all right, we're saying what tradition says. But tradition isn't our first stop. Our first stop is what Jesus said, right? Well, what did Jesus actually say? Well, this is what Jesus said, that he came to fulfill the law of Moses. In Matthew 5, 17, he said, do not think I do have come to abolish the law or just completely get rid of the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm the fulfillment of the law that said, you have to be righteous before God. And you got to go through all of these rituals to be righteous before God. And Jesus said, it ain't going to make it in the end. You need me who lived perfectly every part of the law. And then my righteousness then can be applied to you. That was a message that did not go over well. By the way, it still doesn't go over very well. And then in John 2, 19, Jesus answers them and says this, talking about the holy place in the temple. This is what Jesus said. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus said that when the people destroyed the temple, he was referring to himself. He said that he would rebuild it in three days, and he was talking about his resurrection when he said that. So this offended the religious establishment because their mosaic, their traditions, their law that came from the time of Moses became more important than the truth. And so there's a danger there. There is a warning there for us. And what is the result of this for Stephen? Well, it says he is seized. They got him. They brought him before the council. They got people to throw false accusations up against him. And the last thing the text says in verse 15 is this. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now we're going to unpack what that means in a minute because it's actually really cool. Um, But here's the question I want to answer from verses 8 through 15 for our time this morning, and it's this. What did God give to Stephen to live out the gospel the way that he did? What did Stephen have? What did he have to live out the gospel in this particular way that we see him living out the gospel, even in the face 
of knowing what might lie ahead for him and the danger that was lurking behind the door. Well, the first thing that we read about is that God gave Stephen grace and power. It says in verse 8, and Stephen full of grace and power. And in fact, this is not the first time it says it. Go back to chapter 4, verse 33 in Acts, and it says, and with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So this passage tells us that this is the way the gospel goes out. This is the way the gospel is meant to go out. This is the only way for the gospel to effectively go out is with grace and power. Now, listen, whether God still works through signs and wonders like this is up for debate in, in churches. Can God work like this through signs and wonders? Yes. Does he? It's not normative when he does. It's certainly not normative in America when he does. Does God heal the sick? Yes. Does he always heal? No. Is healing guaranteed because we pray for healing? It is not. We don't find that anywhere in scripture. Can God do miraculous signs? Absolutely. Does he always do miraculous signs in the way that we think miraculous signs, which is something supernatural um, that we don't see in, the, in our day-to-day -day life? Can he do it? Yes. Does he always? No. Okay. What we're going to key in on here is that Stephen was living out the gospel with grace and power. He was giving testimony to something that had happened inside of him. Grace means that his life was a living testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Christians, all right? That's you. Christians are a testimony to God's power to transform a lost soul from death to life. So if this is you, if you are somebody that is now a lost soul that's been transferred from death to life, you have the testimony that Stephen had. You have the grace of God and the power of his word living inside of you through his spirit. You are not like the Flintstones. Some of you should ask me what that means, Ronnie. I'm going to tell you right now. You know, remember the Flintstones? One of my favorite part of the Flintstones which was this family that lived in like 10,000 BC. It was a cartoon. They made two like horrendous movies out of it starring like Alec Baldwin's, you know, fourth brother. And um, that's beside the point. But the Flintstones were this unique family in that everything they did, you know, was, was prehistoric. So there was no electricity. One of the things I loved about the Flintstones was that when they got in their car, there was no engine. The engine was their feet. And so they would hop in their car and it was like this, this thing with, you know, all these, these two by fours and these rock wheels and they would all sit in the seats and they would just start kicking their feet and that's how they got around, right? That was the Flintstone car. That's not you if you're a believer. I know, man, reaching for one this, this week, isn't it? <laughs> that's not you. Before Christ, that was you. There was no engine, you were like a Flintstone in a car with no engine and all you had was your feet, right? Christ in you is the addition of grace and power in your life. And you know what that does? That allows you to be a sign and a wonder to the grace and mercy of God. Now, some of you are going to say, what some, what's rising up in some of you is you're going to say, Ronnie, I don't have these gifts, man. 
You're talking about Stephen. You're acting like he's this normal dude, but I'm telling you, I ain't that guy. I'm not like Stephen. And this is the answer to that, all right? That's okay because gifting and intellect is not worth as much as God's grace and power. It's not worth as much. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20 reminds us, where is the one who is wise, it says? Where is the scribe? Where's the writer? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The cross is a folly because it's saying only by knowing our weaknesses, only by realizing that we have nothing can we have everything with God. So you are a walking monument for what happens when God redeems the most ridiculous people in the world. And we are all the most ridiculous people in the world. Embrace that. Embrace that by embracing your weaknesses because when you're weak inside, that's when he's strong inside of you. You have grace and power. It's the world that's driving without engines. So Stephen had grace and power. You know what he also had, it says? He had wisdom and the spirit. What does that mean exactly when it says he spoke to them in wisdom and the spirit? It means Stephen was somebody who had studied to show himself approved and was able to answer objections thoughtfully and winsomely. So Christians need to know how to answer questions. We need to know how to answer disagreements by those who either oppose the faith or are really just trying to understand it and may just want some healthy engagement in dialogue. Now, this is what happens with what I just said. We think before proclaiming or sharing the gospel, we need to know more scripture. And you know what? We do. We do need to know more scripture, but not in order to share the gospel story that you've been given today. What you need more than having the right answers is having the right spirit when sharing the answers that you do have. Stephen answered with wisdom, it says. It wasn't just the right words or the right theology, which, by the way, is vital. It was also the way he shared the wisdom of God that he had, which was in a winsome manner through the fruit of the Spirit that had been made alive in him. So it matters that we have the truth it matters that we know how to express the truth in the most truthful way. You know what also matters is the way in which we express that truth and engage with other people. Paul reminds us in Colossians 4, he said, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's instruction for us right there that's helpful. So Stephen spoke in such a way with such wisdom and spirit that they couldn't withstand or debate him, right? And so we don't, we, don't, we don't know exactly what that looked like, but there was a way that he engaged with them that in a sense was frustrating to them, not only because of the words of truth that he used that, that pushed against their traditions, but he did it in such a manner that showed wisdom and the fruit of the spirit. Because look, people can always refute your words, 
It's much harder, though, to refute a loving tone, a gentle voice, a self-controlled response, or a kind word. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this is included in the grace and power that you've been given, by the way. It's part of the gospel package that you were given when God saved you. You have grace and power, and you have wisdom and the spirit with which to express that grace and power. You know what else you have? The face of an angel. The face of an angel. That's what it says in verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when it says the council saw that Stephen's face was like an angel, it doesn't mean he transformed into a Cupid on the spot, right? He didn't suddenly become like a Rembrandt with a halo like hovering over his head. We need to understand what this means because we kind of have this societal view of angels that is like crazy wrong, right? Al Mohler writes this. He says, angels are not sweet cherubic creatures seeking to bring cuteness to a room. He said they are messengers of God. He said they inspire awe and fear. Their purpose was to bring a message from the one true God. So for Luke to say that Stephen had the face of an angel was to comment on his role as a true messenger of the word of God. So if we go through scripture, we see that when people are confronted with angels in the Bible, like nobody's asking to like take a selfie with them, you know, at that particular moment. That's not happening. There is a fear. There is an awe. There is a trembling when people see these messengers of God. And so what Luke is pointing out to us, there you go, is when we think of Stephen having the face of an angel, what we need to understand about that is that there was a determination. There was a deep confidence in him that came as the result of grace, power, wisdom, and the spirit. Well, what does that look like? What does determination and deep confidence look like? Well, let's talk about what it what it, what it doesn't look like. I think that will help us a little bit more. Here's what determination and deep confidence looks like as we are engaging with others with the gospel, as we are expressing our faith with grace, power, wisdom, and the spirit. Here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like bullying. So he was determined and he had deep confidence, but he wasn't a bully because bullying is not gracious. It doesn't look like anger and intolerance. Because anger and intolerance lacks power. It doesn't look like ignorance, right? Because ignorance, being unstudied, not knowing even one word of what you're going to say on any level, lacks wisdom. It doesn't look uncontrolled either. Because lack of self-control is lack of the spirit. So that's what it doesn't look like. What it looks like is what we see in Stephen is that he had a determination to say exactly what it is that he was called to say as somebody who was a messenger from God. And he had a deep confidence that his words were true. And we're gonna see that in the way that he expresses his faith next week in his defense to the council. So in the end here, what we see for our time today is that Stephen was seized by the religious people. He was seized. He was taken in. 
What would you say is something that seizes you? What is something that threatens you? What is something that threatens to prevent you from being someone who lives out the gospel the way that Stephen did? Because chances are you're not going to be seized, at least today, in America for preaching the gospel, for sharing your faith. But is there something in your life that seizes you, that holds you back, that binds you, that threatens to prevent you from being someone who lives like Stephen? If God could empower a man when the stakes were this high, how might he be empowering you when the stakes are so much lower in our particular moment here in history? In other words, if God is so powerful to work in someone when death is on the line, how might he work in you when you have the opportunity to express your faith, to share the gospel, to communicate your gospel story when you are actually in no fear of being seized and being oppressed and being put away. See, it wasn't what Stephen was doing. It was what he was given to do what he was doing, right? He was given the grace and power of God. He was given the wisdom of the spirit. He was given the deep confidence and determination of a messenger of Christ. Stephen was given the word of God, the wondrous, wonderful word of God to cut through hearts. Here's what else is true. Grace, power, wisdom, spirit empowerment, determination, and deep confidence, those are things that come through prayer. Those are things that come through prayer. You have been given these things, but you need prayer to give you the boldness to practice these things. And look what happens when we turn back to chapter four. Stephen is the result of these bold prayers that were made. Chapter four, verse one says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We get down to verse 23. This is what happens. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them because they had said, stop. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What they're saying is everything that's happening was all a part of the plan. Nothing fell outside of what you had already predestined to take 
place. Somebody asked me recently, Ronnie, is substance a church that believes in predestination? Yes, because the Bible believes in predestination. And we'll get into the weeds of that uh, some place down the road. But this is what it says in this prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Stephen had this boldness because this boldness had been prayed for It has been asked for. So the message here for us, it's not simply, hey, God uses the Stevens of the world. He can use you too. Let's pray. That's not the message. It's that, well, it's that he only uses the Stevens of the world. Men and women and children full of faith and the Holy Spirit Do you realize this grace and power, this wisdom and spirit, an angel-like proclamation already exists inside of you? It already exists inside of you to share the most important message the world will ever need to hear? Do you realize that? Do we understand that? Will we walk out today remembering that, praying for that, asking God to give us boldness towards that? Because you have a God who is so strong that in the face of death, he gives you the boldness to tell people about the one who defeated death now and forever. This is your God. This is your grace. This is your power. This is your wisdom. This is the spirit living inside of you. The God of Stephen is the God of Substance Church. Let's pray.